You are listening to Season 1 of Serial Sisters. I'm Jamie. And I'm Tess. Today we're discussing the case of Amy Lynn Bradley, who predicted something bad would happen to her on a cruise ship before she even boarded. This is Premonition. In March of 1998, the Bradley family boarded the Rhapsody of the Seas cruise ship. Ryan Bradley had been awarded the week-long Caribbean cruise by the Illinois Mutual Life Insurance Company for his work performance. As a side note before we get into the case, I know my boss listens to our podcast, so I'm just saying, I work hard, where's my cruise? But Ryan brought along with him his wife, Iva, and their two adult children, Brad and Amy. Ron, Iva, and Brad were all very excited about the trip. In particular, Iva thought this would be a great opportunity for the family to spend time together. Amy, who was 23 years old at the time, had just graduated from Linwood College with a degree in physical education. Brad, who was 21, was still working to obtain his degree, but he was close enough to being done that Iva thought it would be a great milestone vacation to celebrate both of their achievements. Plus, if she's anything like our mom, she'll take any excuse to get the whole family together. But Amy had reservations. Yeah, Amy actually wasn't looking forward to this trip at all. She just had a bad feeling about it from the beginning and was really concerned about being in the middle of the ocean. She was a really strong swimmer and very athletic in general, but being able to swim in a pool or a lake versus you know, open waters is a much different thing. Right. This actually reminds me of a time you and I overestimated our swimming ability in open waters. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. Um, So for those of you listening, our grandparents owned a condo that was right on the beach in North Myrtle Beach. So we spent there, we spent summers there growing up. We and that al- is the end of the story. <laughs> right. Um, we also lived close to a couple of lakes that we frequented, frequented quite a bit when we were growing up. So we learned how to swim pretty early and grew up swimming in pools and lakes and even in the ocean. Anyway, there was one time that we took boogie boards out to ride the waves at the beach, which is something that we pretty commonly did, except this time, I guess we weren't really paying attention and we were out there for a while and the next thing we know a lifeguard is like yelling at us that we've gone too far and then we tried to swim back to shore but we weren't (laughs) going anywhere and we realized that we were caught in the undercurrent um (laughs) long story short uh we wound up being rescued by a lifeguard while a crowd of people lined the beach and watched it was and he was cute like I remember being at that age where I was like just becoming a teenager you know like 13 14 so like cute boys and the approval of everybody is the most important thing to you at the time and 
I just was like, I wanted to die. And I remember you and I went back to the room and we were like, we're never going back out to the beach for the rest uh, of yeah. our lives. <laughs> we were sure that like everyone who witnessed that out on the beach was going to recognize us forever. <laughs> and I think like we didn't ever want to go outside again. But also what was funny is that even as they were coming to rescue us, we're like, no, we have to get our boogie boards. And they're like, leave them behind. <laughs> it's not that important. <laughs> Um, but I tell this embarrassing story to say that I completely understand how even someone who is a swimmer would feel hesitant about being in open water like that, especially if they've grown up swimming mostly in pools and haven't really spent much time in vast open bodies of water. Also, this was like three months after the movie Titanic came out. I have no idea if that had anything to do with what her concerns were, but this was literally the first thing that came to my mind when I heard that she was reserved and that this happened in 1998. That movie was such a huge hit. Like Everyone went to see it. Everyone talked about it. Even though I was just a kid when it came out, I even remember thinking, I'm not really in a hurry to get on a cruise ship after watching this movie. Yeah, well, thanks for telling that story. <laughs> and <laughs> anyway, uh, Amy's family was able to eventually convince her to go on this cruise with them. And she decides, I'm probably just overthinking it, which is something, you know, we all do from time to time. And she decides she's going to go ahead and go on this cruise and just have a good time. And it does start out as a really great time. On March 21st, they fly from their home in Petersburg, Virginia to Puerto Rico, where they board the Rhapsody of the Seas. And when they first lay eyes on the ship, they were in awe at how massive and luxurious it is. This helps to put Amy's mind at ease, and she even begins to feel excited about the trip. And postcards she mailed to friends, she tells them how beautiful it is and how she can't wait to share pictures with them. Once aboard the ship, the Bradleys find their shared cabin, which was somewhere around the 8th or 10th floor. There's been some discrepancy in reporting which floor they were on, but I don't think it's really relevant, so we can just say somewhere between the 8th and 10th floor. They had a private deck overlooking the water and floor-to-ceiling windows, which sounds amazing. Ron and Iva share one room, and Brad and Amy share the other room, which had two twin beds in it. It might seem a little odd at first that these adult siblings were sharing a room, but remember that Ron's employer was paying for the trip, so I'm assuming they were just trying to maximize what the company was paying for. The first leg of their trip would take them to Aruba, and there was plenty to do on the way there. The ship was equipped with karaoke bars, a casino, lounges, basically everything you'd expect from an all-inclusive cruise. Yeah, and there is one weird thing early on, though. So early into the trip, there were three waiters on the ship who seemed to be paying extra close attention to Amy. And Amy was young, attractive, so that wasn't unusual. But it was noticeable enough that the Bradleys took notice. And one night while they were docked in Aruba, Ron and Iva were mingling with some of Ron's co-workers who had also been awarded this trip. And one of those waiters actually approached them and asked where Amy was. And they told the Bradleys that they were wanting to take Amy to this bar in Aruba called Carlos and Charlie's. Yeah, and if, that, if the name of that bar sounds familiar to you, it may be because that was the last place that Natalie Holloway was seen before her disappearance in 2005. 
that was almost a decade after this incident. So I'm not suggesting there's any correlation between the two, but it's just something that Tess and I found interesting about this case and have discussed whether it was a coincidence. Anyway, it probably is no surprise to you that Amy does not go out with them that night. In fact, she tells her mom that she wouldn't go anywhere with those guys and that they give her the creeps. She doesn't let it ruin her trip, though. On March 23rd, the family goes to the ship's formal dinner. For a lot of people, and probably most women, this is one of the more fun parts of going on a cruise. These dinners give you an excuse to dress up, and the whole family does. Amy wears a long, elegant black gown and a choker, and both Ron and Brad wear tuxes. When they show up to have their pictures made, those prom-like pose pictures, Amy has red roses for each of them, which Ron said was just a really sweet and special moment. After that, the four of them decide to change into more casual attire and head to the ship's Calypso party, which I've gathered had more of a, like, club vibe. Yeah, you could say that. It was outside on one of the ship's decks, and there was, you know, a live band, cocktails, dancing, basically a bunch of people just hanging out. In fact, the Bradleys noticed at one point that there were some people hanging out who weren't even passengers of the ship, and I'm not sure exactly how they determined that they weren't part of this cruise, but Ivan in particular was questioning why people who weren't even passengers were allowed to board the ship, but either way, they were on the ship watching the band. And then another strange thing that happened is that when they went to pick up their pictures from the formal, so you know, like you can go to the concierge or whatever, like after a ride at a theme park and and see the photos that were taken. When they went to go view their pictures, all of Amy's were gone. The staff manning the photos were positive that they had printed her pictures and even said they distinctly remembered laying them out, but every single one that had Amy in it was gone. And they really didn't have an explanation for where they went. And all they could really do is reprint them. And they said they'd do that and have them ready for them to, to look at the next day. Which at the time was, you know, more strange than anything else. But in retrospect, it seems super creepy. But, I mean, they had no idea at this time that anything bad would happen to Amy. Eventually, Ron and Iva decide to call it a night, and they head back to the room while Brad and Amy decide they're going to move into the ship's disco club. Brad had met some girls around his age and was busy mingling with them, while Amy was spotted at different times mingling with other passengers, some crew members, and members of the Blue Orchid, which is the band that was playing that night. So around 3.30 in the morning, Brad decides he's going to head back to his room alone, and then Amy follows shortly behind, and she ends up returning to the room about 20 minutes after Brad does. I don't know about you, Tess, but just thinking about staying out all night like that makes me tired, and it's a great reminder that I'm definitely not in my 20s anymore. Um, Yeah, (laughs) or early 30s. (laughs) I think I still count as early 30s. I'm I'm younger than Tess, by the way. Um, anyway, I'm younger at heart. <laughs> anyway, Brad and Amy sit out on the balcony chatting for a few minutes while Amy smokes a cigarette before Brad goes inside to go to sleep around four. 
Amy decides to stay outside a bit longer to enjoy the breeze. At some point in the early morning hours, Ryan wakes up and goes to check on them. He spots Brad in bed sleeping and Amy on the balcony. He didn't know what time it was, but he said that he felt like he could go back to bed and really get some rest now, knowing that his kids were there and they were safe. And this sounds just like a parent. It didn't matter that his kids were grown. He was still going to worry about them as long as he knew they were out. So he goes back to bed, but when he wakes up again, he has this gut feeling that something isn't right. This time, we know it was around 6 a.m. When he goes to check on the kids, Brad is in bed asleep, but Amy isn't in her bed and she's no longer on the balcony. He finds it strange, but he isn't panicked. After all, she brought along all this film to take pictures, and it's possible that she's on the upper deck taking photographs or something like that. Her cigarettes were missing too, so it was also possible that she'd gone somewhere else on the ship to smoke. Just for his own peace of mind though, he decides to get dressed and walk the public parts of the ship to find her, but his search comes up empty. Amy was nowhere to be found on the ship. Ryan returns to the cabin around 7 and wakes Iva to tell her that their daughter is missing. She says that she didn't even recognize her husband when he woke her, that the look of concern she saw on his face was something that she'd never seen before. Yeah, every time I hear this story, and, you know, I've followed this story for a long time, and I just think it's only been like an hour, you know, this all happened between six and seven, not to mention they're on a cruise ship. And wasn't it possible that he and Amy had just missed each other? I equate this to like trying to find someone in a mall, you know, just by walking around. And I've been on a cruise ship before and actually one of the decks had a track around it and I would run every morning. So if I were just kind of aimlessly walking around to find someone, it seems really possible that you could just keep missing each other and not realize it. But I guess you know your family and you know what's normal or what's not normal. This was also before cell phones, so it could be that they had a system for checking in with each other that she hadn't followed before she disappeared. Maybe they wouldn't have panicked if they'd seen a note from her or something like that that would indicate that she'd left the room on purpose. Yeah, I agree that it kind of seems like an overreach to say someone's missing when it's been an hour since you've seen them, but... Also, Ron said that he noticed the door to their balcony was slightly ajar when he woke up to find her not in the room. So perhaps his mind had already gone into overdrive thinking that someone had accessed their bedroom from the balcony. It seems unlikely given that they were several floors up, but sometimes when you spot something that just feels off, your mind starts coming up with scenarios before you have a chance to even think about whether they're rational. Plus, like you said, you know your family and what's normal for them. Obviously, this was something that seemed enough out of character for Amy that it caused them to feel alarmed. Right. Well, soon, Iva, Ron, and Brad are all searching the ship for Amy. And remember those overly attentive waiters that I was telling you about earlier? Well, one of them approaches Brad during this search and says, I'm sorry to hear about your sister, which seems like a harmless statement but what's weird at that point is that nobody else even knew that amy was missing 
Yeah, Brad said he didn't think about it until later because naturally his head was all over the place in those early moments, but looking back on it, it was definitely creepy. The family does eventually alert the ship's crew, but it becomes clear pretty quickly that they are more concerned with how this will affect their business than anything else. They make one page asking Amy to come to the front desk, and they tell the Bradleys they've done an extensive search of the ship and that she isn't on board. The ship is scheduled to depart Curacao soon, and despite families' pleas and literally crying for help, the captain insists that the ship will leave on time, with or without Amy. The Bradleys now know that if anyone is going to do anything to find her, it'll be entirely up to them. When the ship's journey in Curacao comes to an end, the family is left with an impossible decision. Board the ship knowing they could be leaving Amy behind or stay on the island and wonder if she's somewhere aboard the ship needing their help. I really have no idea how anyone could make a decision like that. Ugh. Ugh. I, I mean, you can't. At least not one that you're going to feel good about, right? You're going to worry that you made the wrong decision no matter which decision you make. Exactly. Amy's family tried to weigh their options, but maritime law is like super complicated. And because Rhapsody of the Seas was registered in Norway, Norwegian authorities had jurisdiction over the ship itself. And so if the family wanted to receive help from the FBI and the American embassy, they would have to make the decision to stay on land in Curacao. And ultimately, that's what they decided to do. They've been assured that the ship's been searched and that Amy is nowhere on board. So if they are to believe that, then they figure getting off the ship and searching land is going to be their best shot at finding her. So early on the morning of March 25th, going on about 24 hours after Amy went missing, the embassy and the local Navy decide to begin a search for her in the water with boats and helicopters. Their efforts come up empty. So the following day, the family decides that they need to get back to the ship and get on that ship. And I empathize with them so much at this point in the story. They were already unsure about their decision to stay on the island. So when the search comes up empty, it undoubtedly calls them to feel guilty for not staying on the ship to begin with, even though, I mean, who could make that decision? But Making matters worse, the FBI has learned that there was never really as thorough a search of the cruise ship as the Bradleys had originally believed. It turns out they'd only searched public areas of the ship, and the crew hadn't entered private cabins, the cruise quarters, or employee-only areas like the family had originally thought. On March 26th, the family flies to St. Martin to reboard the Rhapsody of the Seas. The following day, the FBI meets the ship in St. Thomas, where they're able to board the ship with permission from Norwegian government officials. FBI agents are told in no uncertain terms what they may or may not do. 
And just like before, this includes being sure that the search for Amy doesn't disturb any other guests and, and doesn't impact their experience on the ship. They are required to wear plain clothes. It's not to cause any alarm. And the ship's attorney is present for the FBI's initial meeting with the Bradleys, as well as for all crew member interviews. Now, this would cause anyone to wonder what in the world the captain and the crew of this ship are trying to hide. But to play devil's advocate for a second, there weren't any obvious signs that something bad had happened to Amy. And they had over 2,000 passengers on this ship. So the last thing that they wanted to do was cause undue panic, leading passengers to think something horrible had happened when they weren't even sure if that was the case. We hear all the time in these cases that adults are allowed to disappear without telling anyone where they're going. It doesn't happen often, but once in a while it does happen. Had there been any signs that Amy was suffering from mental illness or any kind of signs that she would have wanted to disappear on her own? No, none, actually. And suicide is one of those theories that people who followed this case have presented but there are no signs that she was suicidal or suffering from any kind of mental illness or depression or anything like that. Plus, keep in mind that she was terrified of something happening to her on the ship. So if she were going to commit suicide, I don't believe that, you know, she would have done it in open waters. And nor do I think she would have wandered off on an unfamiliar island to disappear on her own accord. You know, she had plans of returning home. Yeah, that's true. You're right. It doesn't seem like the most likely scenario, and it isn't one that the FBI seems to be spending a lot of time on either. They learned that the night Amy was last seen alive, the night that she and Brad went to the Calypso party and then to the disco club, one of the people she was dancing with and was last seen speaking to was one of the band members so the blue orchid band's bassist alistair douglas he went by the nickname yellow so yellow is given a polygraph test and obviously the bradleys weren't allowed in the room but they're standing just outside of it and when yellow emerges ron witnesses him smirking and he gives another crew member a thumbs up as if he's all clear however the results of the polygraph actually came back inconclusive and by the way, Ron, Iva, and Brad were all given polygraph tests as well, and were all quickly eliminated as suspects. Yeah, and they were never really considered suspects, but it is common practice to go ahead and eliminate those closest to the victim before investigators expand their investigation. Unfortunately, um, the investigation isn't yielding any results. And you want to hear something that's really frustrating? The ship was equipped with more than 40 surveillance cameras, but conveniently, none of them were recording on the night Amy disappeared. On March 28th, the cruise comes to an end and the family is forced to fly back to Virginia short one member. Though they receive a few reports of sightings of Amy, all their leads turn up empty. Then in May of 1999, Amy's disappearance is featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and this gives the case some much-needed exposure. A man by the name of David Carmichael sees the episode, and he knew pretty much right away that he had seen Amy. 
Right. So David was a Canadian scuba diver who'd been on a dive in Playa Porta Marie in Curacao in August of 98. He notices a woman with two men and she appeared to be in distress. Later, he and his friend are sitting at a bar nearby where they have packed up their gear. He happens to spot this same woman sitting nearby, and he notices that she has a Tasmanian devil tattoo on her shoulder and a gecko tattoo on her belly button. And Amy actually had a total of four tattoos. She had a Chinese symbol for faith on her right ankle, a tribal sun tattoo on her lower back, and then both of the tattoos that David had described. And Amy had actually designed the Tasmanian devil tattoo herself, so it was unique to her. David felt like something was off, but it wasn't until he saw the episode of Unsolved Mysteries that he realized she was a missing person. At this point, a reward is being offered, which makes it more difficult to filter leads because some people will call in with information just trying to get the reward money. But David made it clear right away he's not interested in receiving the reward money, and he took a polygraph and passed. And David's story is consistent with other information that comes in later. In 1999, a sailor with the U.S. Navy visited a brothel in Curacao, and he claims that a woman approached him saying that she was Amy Bradley and needed help. He tells her there's a Navy ship nearby and that she should go there to get help. But she says, no, you don't understand. I can't leave. You have to help me get out of here. He never reported the incident, at least not right when it happened, because he didn't want the word to get out that he'd visited a brothel. But after seeing Amy's photo on the cover of People magazine in 2001 and realizing that he'd encountered a missing person two years earlier, he knew he had to say something. He does contact authorities, but when authorities go out to the brothel, they discover that it has burned to the ground. Then in August of 1999, Ron and Iva receive an email from a man named Frank Jones. He says he is a former U.S. Army Special Forces officer, now working as a private investigator. And after hearing Amy's story, he believes that he and his team which consisted of Army Rangers and Navy SEALs, could help the Bradley family bring Amy home. He theorizes that she's being held captive by sex traffickers in Curacao, but that she's still alive. At this point, the investigation is stalled, so the Bradleys hire him, hoping he can find something that they haven't. The Bradleys are not wealthy people, but they're willing to do anything they can to bring their daughter home. So they do what they have to do to come up with $25,000, the money that was needed up front to cover the expenses for Frank and his team to conduct their investigation. Shortly after that, in September, we're going on about a year and a half now after Amy's gone missing, Frank calls the Bradleys with news. They've been casing the area's local brothels and have confirmed that Amy is alive and being held against her will in a sex trafficking compound. It's heavily armed and surrounded by barbed wire. She's also been spotted on beaches and grocery stores, restaurants, and, and things like that nearby, almost always with the man with long, sun-bleached hair. Frank says that they now have gathered enough intel that they can go in and get Amy. And Frank even says 
he will put Amy on his back himself and carry her out of there. It's going to take money, though. He's going to need $100,000 to pull this off. The Bradleys, again, come up with the money. They empty their savings. They ask friends and family for donations. They sell some of their belongings. Money is provided by the nation's missing children organization. Unfortunately, the mission fails. Frank says their attempt to rescue Amy resulted in a shootout and basically that they had to abort the mission. They're ready to regroup, though, and go back in and bring her home but it's going to cost another $100,000 and the family doesn't have it. But this time Frank says it's the real deal. In fact, he wants the family in Florida waiting for him so that they can get Amy, greet her there and get her out of there safely again, because they're dealing with dangerous people. Ron and Iva are like, we're just going to have to come up with this money and figure it out. They'll pay any amount of money that it takes to see their daughter again. But they do ask Frank for one thing. They want proof of life. And he provides it in the form of photos. And you can see a woman on the beach. It's not clear, but it's enough that they can tell that it does look like Amy. And the tattoos appear to match. It looks like Amy's frame. Everything like that. So Ron's former employer, the one who sent them on the cruise, agrees to cover the $100,000. They tell them they'll do whatever it takes to help bring Amy home. And in fact, they even fly the family out to Florida on a private jet to meet Amy. The family remains on standby from their hotel room in Florida, waiting for Frank to call and tell them to come out and greet Amy. And I cannot imagine the level of anticipation this family felt sitting in their hotel room. They waited and waited and waited. Frank never called. They are devastated to learn he is a con man and nothing more. On top of the crushing blow of learning that they will not be bringing their daughter home with them from Florida, they're also forced to face the fact that they've spent all of this time, money, and energy focusing solely on this man's investigation and wasting valuable resources that could have been used to find their daughter. Yeah, this is so disgusting. And I mean, the Bradleys were so sure that Amy was coming home this time. Iva had even lined up doctor's appointments for her because, you know, they were prepared. And it's sad, but the Bradleys are not the only family of a missing person to ever be victimized in this way. Con men like Frank Jones prey on families whose stories they hear about in the news at their most vulnerable moment when they're so desperate they're willing to do anything it takes and pay any amount of money to bring their loved one home. In September of 2005, Ron and Iva were anonymously provided racy photos of a woman that appeared to be Amy. They were found on a prostitution website in the Caribbean and the woman was being advertised as a paid escort. Iva told Beth Holloway on her episode of Vanished that she stared at these photos. She said that she shared the photos with her sister, who is an artist, and her sister said to Iva, really look at this picture and tell me what you see. And Iva said, although the woman in the photo had on quite a bit of makeup and had long tousled hair and provocative clothing, she believed it was absolutely a photo of Amy. 
A forensic investigator studied the image as well and said that he would, quote, bet his career, end quote, that it was in fact Amy. Based on overlays of older photos of Amy, the jawline, the eyes, the hairline, etc., it all lined up. For example, in a close-up of ear comparisons between two photos, the investigator notes, quote, unusual curvature of upper portion of the helix. Also, the curvature of the ear is almost identical, end quote. Armed with new potential evidence of Amy's whereabouts, investigators get back into action and try and trace the IP address. However, they're unable to locate the exact location of the address. Then, in December 2005, an Ohio woman named Judy Maurer says she was vacationing in Barbados when she had a scary encounter in a public restroom in a shopping center. She says she entered the restroom and went into a stall. There was no one else in the restroom when all of a sudden another woman is pushed into the bathroom by uh, several men and they, they're aggressive and they just keep repeating, the deal is at 11, you better not mess this up. When they leave the restroom, Judy approaches the woman who is visibly upset and she asks her, you know, where are you from? And the woman said, Virginia. She asks her name, and without looking up, the woman says really quietly, Amy. And Judy remembers that her name was Amy because that was Judy's daughter's name. Of course, by the time investigators were able to return to the shopping center to check this lead out, there was no sign of any captors. In our opinion, the theory that Amy was abducted into a sex trafficking ring ring seems to be the most likely scenario. Tess, you and I have talked about this before, about how as recently as a few years ago, we were really naive about human trafficking. And not that we didn't believe that it happened, but we just didn't realize how frequently and how commonly it happened. But we are learning that this is unfortunately a more common occurrence than we ever realized before. Yeah, that's totally true. And Iva had even said in her interview with Beth Holloway that when she was first provided, you know, that theory of sex trafficking, she thought, you know, that's crazy. You know, we mentioned earlier in the episode that the wait staff on the cruise ship wanted to invite Amy out to that same bar that Natalie Holloway would later be seen last before her disappearance, the Carlos and Charlie's. We said that it could have just been a coincidence, but really it's also possible that it wasn't just a coincidence. It is definitely possible that this location was used as some sort of meeting point for sex traffickers. Unfortunately, we still really don't know for certain what happened to either of these women. We don't even know for sure that they were abducted. But because we do believe it is a possibility in both cases, we thought it would be a great time to draw attention to this very real problem that exists. Human trafficking is believed to be a $150 billion a year industry. And while it may seem like something that doesn't happen where you and I live, if you live in the United States, believe it or not, we rank highest in the number of trafficking cases. So it is so important to know the signs that someone may be in danger and how to help them. 
Imagine if just one of the people who'd come in contact with Amy had known how to help her. There are several anti-trafficking organizations that provide valuable resources that could help us all be better allies in situations like that. I'm going to mention switchsc.org just because that happens to be an organization that I'm already familiar with. And I know that they do have resources available to, to help educate people, to help people who were victims of human trafficking. They are South Carolina based, but they have resources that would be helpful to anyone anywhere in the world. Again, that organization is switchsc.org. Or you can look to another organization that you trust for information. And of course, we'll have it linked in the album corresponding with today's episode as well. So, um, and that's where we provide photos and source material. That reminds me, I can't remember the exact name of the organization, but they are starting to place stickers in public restroom stalls that has a untraceable line for victims of trafficking to call. So just something to keep an eye out for. And also, if anyone has any information about the whereabouts of Amy Lynn Bradley, please contact the FBI. Amy is still considered a missing person. Like Jamie said, we'll have photos of Amy in the social media album, so please go look at it, familiarize yourself with her, her face, her tattoos, and share it. She would be about 40 years, or I'm sorry, 45 years old by now, but she could still be out there. So share it, share it, share it. We'll also provide information about how to report tips on this case on our Facebook page. Yeah, we ask you every week to please honor the victims by looking at their faces and remembering them beyond the episode. But this week is critically important because Amy could still be out there. So please go look. In just a moment, I'll read the sources used to create this episode. So please continue listening to hear those read aloud just a little later. But first, I wanted to mention our Serial Chiller special, which is coming out this October. Our season one finale is just a couple of weeks away. Tess, can you believe we've already made it to almost the end of season one? I can't. And you know, (laughs) um, what's exciting, too, is we talked about this Halloween special like early on, I think January, February. So I'm excited. I can't believe that this is actually happening now, (laughs) too. Yeah, we're we're super excited about this. We both love Halloween. So if you're like us and you love Halloween and scary stories, please consider submitting a story idea. You can find out how to participate on our Facebook page by going to facebook.com slash Serial Sisters or go to anchor.fm slash Serial Sisters podcast to find a link for more information. Also, we recently asked you guys to help us fight intellectual property theft by leaving reviews and helping us maintain our place on the charts. We just wanted to say a huge thank you to those of you who have already jumped into action to help us in the fight. And if you enjoy our podcast and you haven't yet taken action, we humbly ask you to consider leaving us a review. That's it for today. We'll see you next week.
Sources used to create this episode include websleuths.com Disappeared Episode title, Trouble Waters InternationalCruiseVictims.org ChrisFenwick.com ABCNews.gov LilithNova.blogspot.com AmyBradleyIsMissing.com AllThat'sInteresting.com StyleWeekly.com and The Dr. Phil Show.